0: Now, do you know that porn sites get more visitors each month than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined? This is the way my next guest talked about it in her TED Talk on growing up in a pornified culture. She went on to say that we know from studies that nearly 90% of the top-watched rented scenes have at least physical or verbal abuse against the woman so what does that mean for our girls who must choose to go along with this culture and be defined by this culture or risk being deemed invisible and inconsequential and what of our boys who are being educated by this culture to understand that to be a man is to embrace a culture taught to him on porn sites that devalue abuse hypersexualize, and pornify girls and women. Folks, talking to kids about porn is not a conversation for the late teens. It's not a conversation for troubled boys and girls. It's a conversation for all of our sons and daughters, and it's necessary sooner than you think. I'd like to offer a trigger warning right now, as this conversation will surely get honest. And I'd also like to give you the opportunity to get your little ones out of the room before we continue. Some of the language may get explicit. This is an important one, and I want you to be able to hear every word. Dr. Gail Dines is a professor emerita of sociology and women's studies at Wheelock College in Boston. She's the author of numerous books and articles, and her latest book, Pornland: How Porn Has Hijacked Our Sexuality has been translated into 5 languages. Dr. Dines is the founding president of the nonprofit Culture Reframed, dedicated to building resilience and resistance in children and youth to the harms of a hypersexualized and pornified society. Culture Reframed develops cutting-edge educational programs that promote healthy development, relationships, and sexuality dr dynes is an internationally known speaker and consultant to governmental bodies here and abroad i have been looking forward to this interview for a very long time as, as for as long as i've known it was happening i've been following dr dynes for uh, many years now what she has to say is profoundly relevant it's disturbing and it's necessary to hear. So thank you so much for being here, Dr. Gail Dines. Welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything.
1: It's a pleasure, thank you for having me as a guest. Well, before we get into the meat of the
0: matter, for those who haven't had the opportunity to meet you, read your articles, see your TED talk, read your book, can you tell us what gets you up in the morning and what got you so focused on the effects of porn on our kids?
1: Well, it was it was actually accidental in a way. I was writing my PhD thesis. I was in my early 20s and I was doing it on how to create a gender equi- equitable classroom. And then somebody mentioned that there was a feminist anti-porn slideshow from the United States. I was actually living in Israel at the time. And so I thought I'd go along. And I have to say that night, my life changed forever. Yeah. And that was 30 years ago, I might add. Wow. So it's not the pornography that is mainstream today. But even then, the images I saw, the violence, I just couldn't believe that you know, men made these images or men found them arousing. And I went home and I called my PhD advisor and I said, I'm changing my topic of my dissertation. I'm doing it on the sociology of pornography. And that's how it started mm-hmm. over 30 years ago.
0: Mm, so interesting. And yes. It's amazing, these images that are out there. You've been very clear that what we are talking about today is not your parents' porn. We're not talking about the Playboy magazine kids hid under their mattresses. Um, We're not talking about the centerfold they peeked at in the bathroom. So if you could please enlighten us, how has porn changed since the advent of the internet, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, smartphones? And why, why does this change matter so much?
1: Okay, so you know, I always say somewhat ironically that I look back at the sort of early days of porn when I was researching this Playboy penthouse hustler kind of with nostalgia hmm. because who knew we would get to this. So, what really happened in 2000 when the internet became domesticated is it made porn affordable, anonymous, and accessible the three A's that drive demand. And literally overnight, pornography kind of cannibalized the internet. Um, it just swept over the internet, and I was, as those of us who study it, we we actually couldn't believe how violent it was so quickly. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a gradual level, so it went from like the Playboy penthouse pinup, really very quickly, to images that I'm really not exaggerating when I say a lot of them belong on an Amnesty International website. Mm-hmm. Now this is mainstream. I when I only follow the breadcrumbs of a 12 year old. Who doesn't have a credit card? Right. And so, a couple of dates that are really important. So, 2000, it began with the advent of the internet. And then, what really shifted was around 2007, 2008, a company was formed called Manwin, run by Fabian Thimer No one's ever heard of him because all of this is stealth. It's a stealth public mm-hmm. health crisis. The companies that run the porn industry are stealth. The people who have changed the landscape of sexual um, templates are stealth. So let me just introduce you to some of them. Mm-hmm. So Fabian Thymann was a German businessman who specialized in IT. And what he did is he basically came in and he vacuumed up the distribution end of of the porn sites online and he met he was his company manwin that was later changed to mindgeek because he was thrown out a few years later for tax evasion yeah. his company started what we call free tube sites this is where like youtube but it's called Pornhub, PornTube, porn tube you name it they mindgeek owns the vast majority of them so let me just tell you what it looks like for the average 11 12 year old boy and we should tell I should tell your guests that studies show, depending on which study you're looking at, that the average boy starts looking at porn between 11 and 13, depending Excellent. which study you're looking at. Mm-hmm. So they put porn into Google, and they get to it through Instagram, which we'll talk about later, and they're immediately catapulted onto usually Pornhub, which is the main, um, most traveled porn site in the world, owned by MindGeek, which is a free porn site. So you can download virtually anything for free most of the stuff on there is pirated or a good percentage is pirated you click on there and the images that you immediately get catapulted into are images of women being choked with a penis till she can't breathe women rough anal sex till she's in pain and she's crying usually it's three men penetrating her orally vaginally anally as they're pulling her hair spitting in her face calling her Every name, which I probably shouldn't say on the radio mm-hmm. um, or the podcast. And this is your standard. This is your standard scene. Now, I want to talk about that 11-year-old boy because that 11-year-old boy, when he puts porn into Google or whatever, he is thinking that maybe he's going to see a pair of breasts, right. maybe if he's lucky, a vagina or sex. What he's not expecting is to be catapulted into this world of sexual violence. Now, what happens to that 11-, 12-year-old boy? he is kind of pulled in by the pornography first of all Very normally he's beginning to go into puberty. Well, puberty's probably been going on a few years, but he's getting sexual arousal, he's getting erections, and he's interested in sex, which is perfectly, you know, normal developmentally Mm -hmm. given where he's at. The problem is, is that lacking good sex education, and I have to say that the abstinence only movement is like the biggest gift to the porn industry imaginable. Christmas came early for the porn industry with abstinence only because absent good education around sex and relationships and intimacy kids will go to porn we know that right right? research so what happens is he puts porn into Google he gets catapulted into Pornhub or YouPorn both owned by MindGeek and what he sees is incredible images of violence that I when I was writing my book Pornland I mean I could barely stand it of course and I was thinking to myself You know, how does this 11, 12-year-old boy stand it? Because I, too, am the mother of a son. Right. And I was thinking, you know, what would have happened if when my son was 11 or 12, he saw this? He would have gone run screaming for (sighs) help. Why are these kids staying on this? And then I started to read some of the actual text that goes with the images and the scenes. And they say things like... Are you man enough for this? Mm -hmm. We know what you want and we're giving it to you. Can you handle this? Now, what 12-year-old boy is going to say, no, I'm not man enough for this? Right. So he's going to stay on it. So what's happening is very interesting. He's expecting one thing. He gets catapulted into sexual violence. Just let's think what is going on in his neurons and in his limbic system and his stomach. You've got this boy who probably feels deep shame at what he's looking at. Exactly. He's probably scared. He's completely confused, doesn't know what it is, and yet he's masturbating to it, so he's aroused. So he does think he wants this because this is what the porn sites have told him. So I think what you have is a toxic stew in his stomach of shame, ambivalence, mm-hmm. you know, Anger, rage, and I think ultimately what you're doing is you're traumatizing a generation of, of boys. Those images are so violent that to actually watch it, they are traumatizing. Uh-huh. And then what happens, and you're a psychologist, so you would know this, is that if you don't deal with the trauma at the time it happens, you have kind of compulsive behavioral repetition where you go back to the site at which the trauma happened. Yes. So think about this, he keeps going back to the porn site, mm-hmm. which is a brilliant business model, because you're building in potential addiction. It's a terrible thing for society, but it is a brilliant business model, because that poor boy at 11, 12 years old, who sat there and watched these images, has nobody to tell, nobody to say, this happened, I saw this, because often, Parents will, you know, have a fit, get upset, Mm -hmm. and that's not what you should do. That's actually the worst thing you can do because you just add shame onto those 11-year-old shoulders. And the shame should go very firmly on the porn industry, not on that boy. Exactly. He's just being pulled into something that's developmentally, you know, appropriate. It's just the porn industry that's making it developmentally inappropriate. Mm -hmm. And so that's really what's going on here. We are traumatizing our boys, and when you traumatize our boys and you lay waste to them, you are actually gonna lay waste to our girls. And when you lay waste to the next generation of boys and girls, you actually eventually lay waste to the culture. Mm -hmm. That's what I argue in my work that's why we started culture reframed that's what porn lands about that's what my videos on um youtube about that's what my, my ted talk is about is really what is the long term implications of this massive social experiment of bringing up boys with just a click away from hardcore porn
0: right so if we could look into uh, into that a little bit deeper and take that 12 year old boy who's now been exposed who feels that he can't talk about it, who's now getting re-exposed over and over again um, and desensitized to what he's seeing. What happens to that boy as he's growing up and becoming a man? What happens 10 years from now? what What is the developmental cost to this exposure?
1: All right. So what I'm going to tell you about is basically drawn from 30 years of empirical research, but especially the last 10 years of research, Mm -hmm. you know, since we've had the Internet. So what we know is even one exposure to pornography can reshape boys' sexual template, the way they think about sex, the way they think about their bodies, the way they think about girls' bodies, the way they think about relationships. Just one exposure has been shown to do that. But now we're talking about repeated exposure. So this is what happens and what the studies are showing, is that the more they keep going back to it, the more they begin to withdraw from actual life. Mm. The more they get, I won't say addicted because addiction is at the far end of the continuum, but the more they begin looking at porn, the less interested they are in really looking at real girls, or if they are starting to date or hook up, which is now we live in a hook up culture, they're playing out porn sex on these girls' bodies, also what we know is the more porn you look at and the earlier you get to it the more anxious the more depressed the more likely you are to aggress against a girl the less capacity you have for intimacy and connection mm-hmm. so let's follow this boy as he continues using it some will become addicts not all of course it depends on you know who they are what their past histories are that they bring to this we do know that all of them will be affected all of them will have a less capacity for intimacy and relationships so when when it comes to actually thinking about partnering and how to develop a relationship they are developmentally training girls now and we've always known that boys developmentally trail behind girls but it's getting much worse. The literature is showing that on every level, cognitive, social, and emotional levels, boys are really lagging behind girls. So what you're seeing is they're becoming more and more isolated. And what's really important to ask is when we live in this kind of porn culture, which often translates on college campuses and high schools to huck up sex, which means just casual sex with maybe three or four different girls a night, many of whom Mm. you don't know their name, how do you learn anything about yourself because when you think about what dating is about it's really about learning how to have a relationship how to connect how to be intimate with somebody it's not just about learning how to be sexual and what you enjoy sexually what you don't enjoy what your boundaries are what your bodily integrity tells you is you know this is a limit or this is not a limit that's up to you to figure out but what the porn industry has done is kind of really cheated boys and girls from that and becoming the authors of their own sexuality. Mm-hmm. So now what we know is that boys in their... Men, there's, there's a recent study I read that said men in their 30s know, know more about their own emotional and sexual development than they did when they were 18. Hmm. That, and really when you think about this, what really turns a boy into an adult male is dating girls. That's if they're, um, we're assuming here they're heterosexual at the moment. We can talk about gay porn later. But, you know, dating is especially so important for boys. And one of the reasons for that. Is that you know there's this very much bullying culture amongst boys. Boys don't tend to really open up with each other, they don't tend to be vulnerable with each other, they tend to use their girlfriends for that, which by the way is the emotional labor that many girls and women do with men is they become the only person in the world that really this boy or man is connected to. Mm-hmm. But it, it sort of gives him capacities for talking about his emotions and for connection. Take that away from him. And really, what do you have? Mm-hmm. What do you have as a grown man who cannot interact, who cannot speak about his emotions, who doesn't know how to create intimate relationships? And by the way, when I go and talk in college campuses, and I've got, you know, men in the audience, they come up to me afterwards, many of the male students, they're literally crying. Yes. They're begging me to help them get off the porn. Mm-hmm. They don't want to be doing this. This is not who they are. And I think it's it's really important to say here that I take a feminist analysis as much of the um, work that we do at Culture Reframed. And often feminists are thought of as being, you know, man-haters. She's mm-hmm. an enormous, you know, Upside down of reality the truth is I always argue is feminists are men's best friends right. We are the only group rooting for their humanity. Mm-hmm. We are the only group who's saying you're not born rapists You're not born John's you're not born porn users. We don't have to say boys will be boys That's too low at a bar. We believe in your humanity and we are going to fight for it and you know how I know that I know that as a sociologist as a feminist, but most profoundly, I know that as a mother of a son. Nobody can tell me that my beautiful boy was born with less capacity for intimacy and connection than girls are. I refuse to accept that. And if I fight on behalf of my son's humanity, then I will also fight on behalf of your son's humanity.
0: And we appreciate it. I have a son as well and a daughter, and all of this is hitting me from every direction. And I have no doubt that the people who are listening are feeling very similar because because it's impossible not to put a person in in your head, or several people in your head, while you're talking about this. I know that some of, uh, many of kids are obviously on the internet, and certainly have you know started to uh, get onto Snapchat and Instagram and many of the other social media sites. And parents are you know wondering what's safe, what's not. Uh, we've talked to a lot of internet specialists. But when it comes to porn, you're talking about now that, that Instagram and there's sort of like hidden areas of, of each one of these social media sites that um, is a place where porn has colonized. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and, and what we
1: need to do to keep our kids safe? Absolutely. Well, first of all, the, let me say one of the worst things that happened to parents in terms of their capacity to parent was the advent of the smartphone.
0: Mm-hmm. That's when
1: you lost all control. And the average age now of a kid getting a smartphone in the U.S. is 10 and a half. So right. we're talking now um, Snapchat is often is mainly teens. It's, it's got T for teens safe. So I was on Snapchat before I gave a lecture. I was in um, L.A. recently and I did like 15 lectures in two weeks. I went across L.A. and spoke to over a thousand parents. And so I decided to really do a deep dive into specifically Snapchat um, Instagram and all of those because this is where the kids are at. So I went onto Instagram, and the first thing I did is I, found, I put in just hot girls or something else, and what I realized as I started looking through is that Instagram has become the site where porn performers build a fan base. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, for example, Sunny Leone, who is one of the top porn performers, she's got 11.7 million followers on Instagram. Hmm. Now, you click on her or you, whatever you tap, you click on, you move whatever device you're using on her, and you immediately go to Pornhub to her porn movies. Mm-hmm. So, in five seconds, I went from Instagram to the most traveled porn site in the world watching hardcore porn. Right. Now, if I can do it in five seconds, the average teen can do it in three. Mm-hmm. So, um, also, we have to talk about selfie culture. Right. And what does it mean? I mean, I mean, I always make a joke. It's not really funny when I lecture. I say, "Do you remember those days when we used to take pictures of other people? <laughs> remember that? It wasn't that long ago." No. So let's just think about the selfie. So most selfies, and we know that girls take more selfies than boys. Mm-hmm. They are hypersexualized, right? They sort of have this, and I'm going to use a term that. I don't mean to offend, but it's an important term to use. They have the kind of fuck me look mm-hmm. with the selfie. Mm-hmm. Um, they put it up, they're barely clothed, and there's never, by the way, a good enough selfie. So we know they take hundreds and hundreds right. of selfies. So, really, the question is really, we're bringing up a generation of girls who are kind of narcissistic voyeurs of their own body.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And we call that self internalization. Or self-objectification and in fact the American Psychological Association did a study um, about ten years ago now and looked at what happens when girls self objectify and the more they hypersexualize and self-objectify themselves the more depression anxiety more um, uh, likely they are to get STDs. Mm-hmm. More likely they are to get pregnant at an early age, drop out of school, and also suicide.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. So this is what the American Psychological Association found. And actually, at culture reframed. We are just about to upload um, a, a report done by one of the original writers of that, which has now been dated. Is now got the latest research mm-hmm. up to two thousand and seventeen. So. Um, the selfie culture has to be deconstructed. Also, we know we selfies that between 40 to 60 percent of girls who do um, nude selfies are actually bullied into it. Now, boys also do nude selfies, but there's a difference. When girls do it, they do it from the nose down, mm. so they're actually identifiable. When boys do it, they do it from the neck down. Mm. Interesting. Right? So it's not that identifiable. We also know, and this is really important, that colleges increasingly, when they do interviews, are following the digital footprint of the stu- of the potential students exactly. they're interviewing. Yeah. Employers are doing that, okay? So we also have to think about the impact of that on the fact that we are really putting girls even further behind in the economic mm-hmm. um, workplace. And when you look at the ways in which kids interact, and the less and less time they have with each other, and the more time they spend with digital devices. Think of all the developmental milestones they're missing. Mm. And especially, again, boys. This This is hitting boys, in a way, much harder. Now, for girls, how it's hitting them is it's an increase in sexual violence, Increasing sexual harassment. I mean, the Me Too movement has really shone a light on just what life is like for girls and women in this culture. Right. We know that, but, I mean, this has just told us. what Every single sector you go to, whether you're going to the highest Hollywood of Harvey Weinstein to the intellectual NPR that got hit, you know, mm-hmm. NPR, I think, what, five or six men got thrown off, mm-hmm. major um, journalists. I mean, it is everywhere. And what worries me... Is What is this going to look like when the boys brought up on porn really start getting older and where violence against women, which is what porn is, has been so normalized that I think the Me Too movement is going to be kind of just explode even further, Mm -hmm. talking about sexual violence, harassment, abuse, the disregard for women, the disrespect. And, and that's not good for girls in any way because they're you're victimized by boys. And, you know, it's not good for boys either. No. It's absolutely not good. And for the culture, it's going to be devastatingly awful.
0: I, I can imagine what you're saying, and I, I, I certainly believe it. We know that porn is everywhere. And as you've said, it's accessible, it's affordable, it's anonymous. And because it is so available and pervasive, everybody who's listening, the parents, the teachers, the coaches... They, I, I can, I can just imagine feel very small and inconsequential in in the fight to stop such a, a a bowling ball, this billion dollar industry effect on kids, in in our lives. So, what is it if we could take it down to the? the applied piece, is that's that's really what our parents and our caregivers need right now. What can they do to help their kids cope, deal, navigate with this porn culture? What are some key tips that you can provide that's, that will help with resistance and resilience when it comes to the power of porn?
1: Okay, well, I've got a lot better... Um, for you than tips I've actually got a whole program I which it. I've discuss. so I'll explain it in a minute but first let me say what you're saying is exactly true and um, I wherever I go to lecture and this doesn't matter whether I go into do into hospitals to speak to pediatricians I go to social work conferences or I speak to parents groups like 15 20 minutes into my lecture Every parent looks great and wants to bolt for the door yes. and go home and speak to their kids. And I ask them this. I say, how many of you at this moment want to run home and speak to your 12-year-old? Mm-hmm. And every hand goes up. And I say, okay, what are you going to say? And then there's hush in the room. Right? Because no one knows what to say right. or do. Because this has caught parents by surprise. It's caught everyone by surprise, by the way, mm-hmm. that it's gotten so bad so quickly. So what was happening in 2013 is I was in a a very well-known children's hospital, and I was giving a lecture. The room was full of pediatricians, uh, nurses, doctors, and I have to say, there was a kind of, I hate to put it this way, but there was a mass hysteria going on in that room mm, of mm. the parents, mothers and fathers, where they, 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 and I looked out and I thought, what am I doing? I'm traveling around the world, telling them what is going on, and I'm leaving them to stew with all of this. Mm-hmm. So we've got to find an answer and some solution. So what happened was I brought together the top people in the field of public health, which requires multidisciplinary people. So we're talking pediatricians, we're talking adolescent psychologists, we're talking sexual health experts, parent educators. And we sat down and we basically founded Culture Reframed. Mm -hmm. Your listeners can find it at culture Reframed. that's R-E-F-R-A-M-E-D, culturereframed.org. So we founded that organization and then we started to write grants. And the first question, of course, they asked us is, what are you going to do with the money? And it was obvious. We are going to build a program for parents to teach parents about how to have the porn conversations with your kids. Mm -hmm. Because we know from a public health perspective that the best protective factor for anything to do with kids is having well-educated, skilled parents on the topic. But of course, we don't have that. So what we did is when we got our grants, and we got grants from many foundations is our team of very top draw experts we got together and we built over 16 months a 12 module program which now you can go in for five minutes or five hours and it's all about what's going on with your kids cognitively emotionally socially sexually is for parents of tweens at this point 9 to 12 mm-hmm. so we explain what you know tween is we explain what's happening biologically what's going on with puberty what's going on in the culture then we go into the wallpaper of their lives the porn images the hypersexualization and we go through this in 12 modules we have embedded videos it's very interactive and then the last piece actually scripted out conversations 12 of them around pornography sexting bodily integrity bodily boundaries and it's a really it quite an amusing story but not really about how we got to that so when I was in LA in um, October and we're about to launch our program in a few months later and there I spoke to 1500 parents at that time I said to them you know we're about to finish the program and the last piece will be these pro these conversations mm-hmm. and we're going to give you bullet points and they all leapt off their seat and said not bullet points right. script them out give Write us the out. words yes. yes we want exactly the words so we went back to our parent educator who's very well known in the field and we said we would they want scripted out conversations they don't want bullet points so she went back to the drawing board and basically we then scripted it out and we did it in a very clever way Not only did we script out a conversation on each issue, we then gave you tips that if the teen, because remember, the average tween is going to want to be anywhere else in the world (laughs) sitting opposite you talking about court. No doubt. (laughs) Right. So we've got tips for how to do that. For example, for boys, best place to do this conversation in the car. Yes. When they're Don't not look looking face at them, to face. I remember when my son was younger, when he liked to bake. So I would always make sure I was at one end of the kitchen, I was at the other. My husband took up mountain biking with him. Um, my husband spent most of that year on crutches, I might add. But <laughs> at least they could um, talk while they were on the bike, so that's really important. There's ways to set up for girls as well. Like for example, you know, we've even got scenarios. You go shopping for clothes with your tween. Uh, for girls. And, you know, how many fights do you think go on in shops where she comes out in something and the mother wants to die on the spot? Mm -hmm. And so, but so, you know, you can't blame that tween either. And what we say really importantly is we really build in a kind of mindful parenting. And we ask that you parent and partner with your kid because your kid is in an impossible situation as well. When that tween comes out looking like she's just walking out of a, you know, pinup magazine or something, she's only doing what the culture has told her mm-hmm, to do. Mm-hmm. And really what the culture says, and we don't have this in the program, obviously, but it's very important to understand what's on the shoulders of that girl. She is being told that she has two choices. She's either fuckable or invisible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, built into the DNA of early adolescence is the need to be visible. Right. And in a bizarre way, how are you visible? You're visible by looking like everybody else. And so if everybody else and all your friends are walking around like that, what, what do you want from her? You can't ask her to choose invisibility. Mm -hmm. so everyone is in a difficult situation here so what we worked very hard not to put the shame on the parents on the kid really to say the fact is this is a culture that is toxic it makes parenting almost impossible today and i parented by the way pre-internet my Mm -hmm. son is now in his early 30s and It was parenting in and of itself is the most humbling challenge you know you'll ever have in the world. Parenting in a digital porn culture is just too much to ask of parents, which is why a culture reframed. We built the program right. now we also and we are a non-profit we should add this everything that we you see we had to raise money for but we made a decision that it was going to be downloadable and accessible for free right. because we did not want only parents with money to have access to this so all you have to do is you go on culturereframe.org, you'll see immediately click here for parents program click on sign up you just have to sign up you don't have to pay anything and you can go in for five minutes or five hours And you can really resource yourself. Mm -hmm. Do not have any conversations with your tween before you have read this because you know what you really don't know what you're going to say or how you're going to say it and believe me it's not going to go as you plan right. It's not is often not going to go well right. and our next program which we are now in the process of writing grants for and fundraising is we are now going to do a parents of teens okay. because we need a new set of experts because of course that's a new developmental level and we have to deal with the fact that around teens kids start having sex right. and we have to deal with that in a porn culture Absolutely. This is invaluable. I
0: think that people absolutely should get onto that website and, and take a look at everything that you have provided. It's such so useful. I'm like bumping up right against your uh, you know the, that age group. I have a daughter who's nine. Uh, I have a son who's about getting ready to turn eight. Um, I have well, many friends who you know who the kids are that are older, they're younger. Many of our listeners you know are dealing with all different age groups. Since we are a podcast that talks a lot about discussing those tough topics, like getting in there, let's have those discussions. I think those scripts are invaluable, but I would like to know, even if it's broad brushstrokes, um, what kind of things would you say or tell us? Like, you do you have the conversation? Prior to your child being exposed to porn. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. and if so, wh- what, what could you say when they haven't seen it? And then tell us on the flip side, the child—you know, all of a sudden you walk in, it's 11 o'clock at night. Your child is in uh, his or her bedroom and you they've been exposed to it. They tell you that they have or you saw it, saw it. And here's the situation right then and there. So I'd like to know sort of two, the both both scenarios. You say it so before the free and the they, yes.
1: Free. So first of all, um, if you don't have that conversation with your kid about porn, believe me, the pornographers will. Yes. And you don't want them to be the ones to open up the conversation. Exactly. So you have to do this. So and let me give you some examples of how I put it when my son was I growing I would love up. that, yes. Okay, and there's many, many more, I mean, I am not a parent educator. I am a a scholar Mm -hmm. and an activist and a researcher. So the parent educators are really the ones on the website who've really gone to town on this. But I'll give you an example of some of the things I did with my son. So we started scaffolding from a very early age, the vocabulary. Mm -hmm. We used proper vocabulary for body parts. We didn't use childish vocabulary. We gave him words to talk about how he felt about his body used words like penis used words like sexism mm-hmm. right so there's a whole vocabulary that he had at his disposal and i broke. and I'll, I'll tell you how, we started so early that i remember going into the room at five when he was five years old and he was watching national geographic and he's pointing at the tv and shaking his head and i said what's the matter and he said they keep saying man in his environment well what about women and their environment mm. and he'd already seen you know that you can't use gender-neutral language. Mm-hmm. So then when he was around 10, I said to him, and, and porn was being passed around through the Internet, not like today. I said to him, look, honey, I said, you know, I cannot be with you all the time, and I cannot decide for you whether you're going to look at porn or not. You're going to have to make that decision. And actually, you don't want me following you around all the time, So, and I don't want to follow you around. <laughs> so it's going to ultimately be your decision. So, but And your friends might show it you. But let me give you some things to think about before you do that. That when you really don't know at this point what your sexuality is going to look like when you're older, you don't know if you're going to be gay, straight, bad, who knows what you're going to be. But you know what? It's going to be wonderful because you are going to be the author of it. It's going to be yours. You are going to own it. And it's going to make sense for the man that you are going to become. It's going to be yours. But. If you look at porn you know what they're going to steal it from you Mm. before you've even owned it for yourself and that's a terrible thing to give away and when he was in his 20s i went talked porn he said well mom you pretty much ruined that one for me (laughs) which was of course exactly my goal yes another example was you know they often there's an age where they go through where they often talk about their penises a lot being really big for example (laughs) so He'd make jokes about, you know, he's going to put his penis here and he's going to sit there, et cetera. And I would say things like, you know what? Your penis is connected to your head and your heart. Every decision you make about your penis, you have to make with your head and your heart Mm -hmm. because you're all in this one beautiful body you can't separate the body and it's very important to give boys a sense of bodily integrity because this culture says to boys that your masculinity can be weighed by how many girls you can screw Mm -hmm. and it is screw it's not make love with Mm -hmm. right we're talking very seriously and so what i think we need to do especially for boys is give them a sense of bodily integrity along with girls and I, i used to do something in my classes when i was teaching um my feminist theories course in college and I would say to my female students, so imagine you're dating this guy, and he's not made any sexual overtures to you. So you decide to start the, you know, things moving, and you put your hand on his leg or something. And he turns to you and he says, you know, I really like you, but I'm not yet ready for a sexual relationship. Mm-hmm. What would you say? And all of them burst out laughing. I say, why are you laughing? They said because he'd be gay, of course, no straight guy would say that to you. Mm-hmm. And I said, so you think it's funny that we live in a culture where boys have no notion of bodily boundaries and sexual integrity? You think it's funny that this is where we've come to, that we don't accept expect boys to have their own sexual limits, and this is the culture's fault, not individual boys. I will not blame individual mm-hmm. kids or individual parents. We love to parent blame, which often ends up as mummy blaming. Absolutely not. I am a sociologist, and the core of sociology is that you have to look at the culture within which you are socialized, within which you're raised, within which you... Live and breathe because that will tell you and give you clues to why you're behaving the way you are. So we do not want to shame or blame these kids for behaving in ways that often we cannot imagine. Mm-hmm. And also what we explain in our programme, very importantly, is we have neuroscientists help us write the program the part on the brain. We explain what the brain looks like for a tween. I mean when your tween Makes these crazy decisions, not just about sex, about anything. And mm-hmm. you think, what the hell is going on? But when you go on our program, you'll understand that basically they're not they're not right for working on a full frontal lobe. They aren't, absolutely. No, we know now from research that you are not fully adult in your brain till your early thirties, mm-hmm. even. Mm-hmm. Right? So what's happening is that. You have a frontal cortex which is overwhelmed often by the need, the impulsive need to do things. This, again, is perfectly normal developmentally. The problem is if you put that in a culture that is toxic and full of porn, where are they going to go? Because porn is great if you're hardwired for novelty and mistaking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we really explain those things out. And then there's so many tips on you know, on the culture website. And then when you just click onto our program and you go onto our educational program, it's just chock full of th- for tweens. And then we are now starting, as I say, to build the teams. And then we will eventually circle back to younger kids. And right. people might say, why didn't you start younger? The truth is, they start younger. I work often in Scandinavian countries. Mm-hmm. They start sex ed at around four or five. Right. In this country, we could not get any grants to do this at that age. Yeah, right. Only because ones, because no one was, they said no one will be interested, no one will do it. So this is why we started at Tween, where really one of our goals should be to, you know, you start laying this foundation like they do in Iceland. For example, I was um, at the consulting for the Icelandic government, and they showed me a film that they show at four years old as part of their sex ed program, which is brilliant because, of course, you don't want to talk sex at four and five years old. So what they did is they developed a three-minute film, two kids, boy and a girl, girlfriend, boyfriend, out having hamburgers. And he takes a bite of his hamburger and it's got cheese on it. He spits it out and says, I hate cheese. And she says, No, you don't, honey. You like cheese. He says, No, I hate it on my hamburger. And she gets up with a smile on her face. She gets the hamburger and she stuffs it down his throat. Oh. He's he's throwing it. Yeah, exactly. And that was my response. And then he's spitting it out. And then she sits down and says, See, I told you you like cheese. Now, just think, you've not mentioned sex. Right. But can you imagine how much curriculum you can build around that for four, five, six, seven year olds about bodily boundaries, Mm -hmm. integrity? Who is she to tell him? What he prefers. Mm-hmm. And that's what scaffolding is. So that by the time you talk about sex, they've already got critical uh, concepts in place mm-hmm. that you can then hang on issues of sex and sexuality yes. and consent.
0: It's, it's fascinating to me. And I, it's a couple of my friends who I had told I'd had a, a conversation with my daughter about sex. I mean, actually, it lasted about an hour, which, you know, people think sometimes these conversations are. In and out and done with, um, and we only have them once. But this is a series of conversations all the time, and this one happened to be a very long conversation. I had been, um, I had also been on doing these interviews. Richard Weisbord, who did a lot on misogyny and uh, great studies on sex and romance and and how to talk about connection. I talked to Dina Alexander about about talking to kids about sex and, and bodily integrity. And people were very surprised that my conversation with my daughter morphed from talking about sex and the mechanics of sex, which really didn't take that long, to discussions about love and misogyny and, you know, what our, what our bodies do for us and how we feel and, and you know, really being connected with somebody else. Because the, the conversation about sex and porn can't be just about the mechanics, right? It has to be couched within the framework of, of what it means and what is important to these kids beyond just the biological sense of
1: Crucial. You know, what you said is so important is it has to be set within the concept of not just sex education, but sexual health Mm -hmm. and sexual relationships, healthy relationships, healthy sexuality. You know, there was a study recently done at Harvard and they asked the undergraduates, what do you wish your parents would have talked more with you about? And you know what the number one answer was? And this was shocking to me, love. Yeah, yes. Right, And we don't, you know, in a culture of huck-up and porn, we don't talk about, let's think about the things, and this is why I am so anti-porn, because everything that makes life worth living, the capacity for intimacy, connection, love, relationships, everything, when you look back, and I have had the most incredibly rich, you know, academic life, Mm -hmm. I've now started a non-profit, but when I look back and I think of the things that fortified me as a human being, where do you go you go to your family you right. go to your kids you go to your partners and what really drives me crazy about porn is it destroys all of the things that makes life meaningful right everything right. that you look back on intimacy and connection you know when i say in my book pornland in porn men make hate to women not love oh wow everything that is connected to love is completely destroyed in porn, and every in, in thing you think about with hate, you know, anger, rage, disgust, all of that is all over porn. And I often get accused because I'm anti porn, they say, Oh, you're anti sex. I say, Actually, I'm pro sex. Right. That's why I'm anti porn. You can't be pro porn and pro sex. Right. You have to pick one. And that's, I think that's really
0: important to underscore and really put high beams on, that these are two different things that we're talking about here. We're not talking about sex. We're not talking about love. We're not talking about connection or intimacy when we're talking about porn. And I don't want to keep people hanging. If you walk in on your son or daughter who has obviously been exposed to it, whether they tell you or that you walk in and you see that they are exposed to it, in that moment, what do you do? What can you what do you say in that moment when you know this is this is an important moment and I can't just close my eyes and say, put that away.
1: Okay. So first of all, what I would say is we, we do have these conversations on our website. Yes, we have a great. model called Compose Yourself. Okay. So what we say first of all is when you walk in and you see that you're probably going to want to maybe shout, scream, yell, grab the phone or whatever device and have a fit. The first thing you have to do, and we explain how you compose yourself, you have to become mindful in that moment because it's all about helping the kid deal with what he's just seen. Not about how you feel, it's about the kid. So you have to approach this in a very calm manner. So I would say the first thing you'd have to say to the kid is, and he knows and it's probably usually a he at this moment. But although girls are increasingly looking at porn, but let's just stay with boys. He knows you've seen it. He is going to feel great shame at that moment. Mm-hmm. So one of the things we do suggest is maybe you say, you know, we need to talk about this. But is this a good time for you, or do you need some time? And do you want to wait a bit, and then I, we can come back? But we do need to set a time to talk about this. This will give him a chance to sort of get rid of some of the shame and the embarrassment that you've just walked in. Right. Because you could be masturbating as right. well, remember, so you don't want to be in the middle of that. And it gives you a chance to run to culturerefame.org. Yes. mod. <laughs> sure. Okay. So yes. post, and also the conversation. Then the conversation has to be around. First and foremost, you put the blame on the industry. Right. Do you understand that the industry is trying to manipulate you into thinking that this is sex? Do you understand that although this is free now, they're trying to make sure that you become a habitual user so that you will be spending money on it. So this is first and foremost, make sure you talk about the industry yes. manipulating him because kids hate to be manipulated. They do. So you make that very clear. He's being manipulated. The next thing you talk about is, and this is they're going to be very difficult for him. So, again, maybe when you're in a car or somewhere, you're not looking. What, what, how do the images make you feel? And, and obviously, you make you feel aroused. But but when you're finished with the image, and this is what the critical thing is, ask, say when you're done with the image and you're finished. And if you've got an open conversation, you could put it when you finish masturbating. You could say, how does it make you feel? Because one of the things that we found when we talk to boys is that in the moment of masturbating, they're really aroused. You know, want to finish the job. But afterwards when they're looking at the image they've just masturbated to, they feel terrible, mm. because she looks absolutely ravaged, I mean, she looks like she had been steamrolled over, Right. and he suddenly thinks, I find this arousing, she's full of it, she's covered in ejaculate, she's just had three men penetrate, she's exhausted, she's lying on the floor, and he doesn't feel good about it Mm -hmm. so you need to tap into the fact that he too feels that he shouldn't be he doesn't want to look in the mirror and think this is who i am so really asking when you're done with the image what emotions do you have how does it make you feel and then i would segue into well when you were would if he's not having sex yet and when, when you get into a relationship with somebody and you decide to have sex how would you like to feel afterwards Mm -hmm. compare how you would like to feel afterwards with how you feel when you're finished with porn and you'll see two completely different set of emotions come up and also another way to say is you know that she is being paid to do that you know that she's doing that because she doesn't have other choices Mm -hmm. do you think with other choices she would do that And that you will probably, and you hope date, not just hark up, with girls who do have choices. And they are not being paid to do that. And actually, even if they tell you you want to do that, you know what? They're probably telling you they want to do that because they think that's what you want to do. Mm. So what you should do is have a conversation about the kinds of things. And you know how many of my students tell me that they, this is women now, look at porn because they want to see what he wants. Right. So here he's being fed a diet of stuff that he doesn't want, right. that he's asking for. She's looking to see what he doesn't want so that he can give him what he doesn't want, but he's being told he wants. Oh, goodness. See how crazy all yes. of this is? Right. Yes, right. So you've got to open up the comp. But the most important thing, and it's really interesting if you read Bessel van der Kolk's book about the body keeps score, mm-hmm. one of the things that happens when you've had a traumatic incident and looking at that porn and masturbating to it for the boy is often traumatic, is it shuts down your capacity for language. Mm. Mm. so you're gonna have to help give him the language because there's a a lot of trauma involved here of seeing these images you know you're watching a woman basically being tortured and that's not me being um flamboyant here with my words so you've really got to help him you know think about how she feels think about if she had choices between going on a porn set and having that happen to her or being a lawyer a doctor a teacher a social mm-hmm. worker what do you think she would have chosen do you think there's any woman wakes up one day and says doctor lawyer social worker teacher porn performer I think I'll go for the porn performer right, right? you don't that it you do that when all the other choices are closed to you and I, and I would say something like this to myself I know that's not the person you are right. I know you don't want to be part of an industry that is based on on the oppression of women. And if they don't understand those kinds of words, you bring it down to that. Right. But what you want to do is resource the boy, not de-resource, and the way you resource him is to let him, I believe most of these kids have their own moral compass. This culture is trying to rip it away. Yes. Help him find his moral compass. And I'll give you another example of a story, again, that I use, and I never mention my son's name, so I keep, his life is private. Right. And I've got permission to tell these stories. So when he was in college, um, so he, he always had very good friends he who were also very similar to him. But one day he found a group of people he was going out with was going to a strip club. And he turned and went back to his dorm. And I said to him, why did you do that? And I thought I'd get the mom response of violence against women, you know, yeah. objective. And it was very interesting what he said to me. He said, you know what, mom? I only have this one body to live in. And I don't think I could stand to be in this body if I had watched a strip club, if I'd gone to a strip club and watched a woman do that. Mm-hmm. I don't think I could stand to be here in this body because I would have been part of her degradation. Oh, wow. Now wow. The difference here is he went because his moral, he would not go because his moral compass said, don't do this. Mm-hmm. This is against your value system. And you will have to live with something that is in opposition to your value system. And so what I would say we need to do with kids is help them especially boys develop a sexual moral compass mm-hmm. so that pornography is violates that moral right. compass in ways that they couldn't tolerate looking at it it doesn't fit in to their concept of what they want for themselves it and just who doesn't they fit. Are. and who they who are. who they are mostly who and who they see themselves as yes. because you know ultimately when you lose your integrity and your moral compass as a human being how do you stand to live in that body right. of yours You really humanize the boy and you
0: humanize the girl when you have this conversation because you're taking you're taking that industry and telling them what they are doing to the heart, to the head. Uh, You've you've made these people into people again instead of the the objects that they've become from uh, as as a result of that porn industry, both the boy and the girl in this situation.
1: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, that's the best way to fight this is by really rehumanizing all of this, because that's what porn does. It dehumanizes. It dehumanizes the consumer. It dehumanizes the women in it. It dehumanizes everybody involved in it. And, you know, we live in a culture of dehumanization. When you look around you and you think, you know, the situation we're in, we really have to figure out ways. And it's not going to be easy, let me tell you, because the problem is that your kid has to be in a peer group. And so the other thing I would, we talked about on our parents' program is that you need to start connecting with other parents and that you can get – we are now making our – program downloadable, which mm-hmm. means you give our program, we are saying to people, if you want to give it in your homes, mm-hmm. in your schools, in your communities, and you don't even have to give as is, if some communities might, you might need to change it a bit, right? It's one size doesn't fit all. But you need to build a peer group for your kid. And the way you do that is you educate other parents. So for example, you might have this whole great moral compass going on with your kid. What if he goes for a sleepover? Uh, I worry
0: about that too. Exactly what I worry about. Thank you for oh. bringing that up.
1: Yes so the quite so the issue is is that now i have to say i was fortunate that i could we sent our son to a small private progressive school mm-hmm. where these were kind of the norms and values we were fortunate and i get the privilege that we had to be able to do that right. but if you don't have that privilege and you're sending your kid you know to a school where not all parents are on the same page then you get them on the same page have an evening in with the friends with the your kids, friends, parents. let Go through some of the culture reframe stuff together. Mm-hmm. Watch my TED talk, have a discussion because yes. I bet you the other parents in that class are worrying about it. And one other thing that's really important is where are the schools?
0: yes yes
1: the schools schools are partying as if we live in the 1990s yes
0: yes and actually so interesting that you said that because somebody told me that their daughter was in the cafeteria and noticed a bunch of boys huddled around a a cell phone and and realized that they were looking at porn at that point she saw a teacher walk by them and tell them you need to put this away Uh, but that was it So what do you, you know, so we have teachers listening. We have coaches listening. What would you say to them as, what is their responsibility
1: in this? What is the school's responsibility? The absolute responsibility. The the, the, the schools cannot leave it to the parents and the kids alone. So this is what I would say. I lecture a lot of schools and I say to the parents who say, you know, the school's doing nothing and we don't know what to do. I think parents do not understand their power. Right. Ten parents marching into a principal's office saying, We demand that you do. Sexual health and relationship education that includes building resilience and resistance to porn, and we have a program for you online, right. which is at, and, it's free, the so, and it's free, by the way. And we demand that you do this because right. it is your job. Your job as a school is to build healthy, robust children. Right. You have got to take into account that we are bringing our kids up in a porn culture. Exactly. What are you doing? I always say this to parents: you have enormous power in a group. So that if you are listening to this as a parent and you really want your schools to help, start calling around, get a group of you to go in and say, we want this in human development classes, we want this in sex ed classes, we want this Wherever it fits in the curriculum, right. we want to bring in speakers about this. We want to have this as an issue mm-hmm. because this has to be done on a school level because of the peer group is so critical to our kids. We know that anyone who's had kids know that around nine or ten, you're toast, and the peer group is the most important. Mm-hmm. This is a good point. And, and thank you for saying that. I
0: feel like I could talk to you all day, but um, and perhaps we need to have you back on because there were several <laughs> things that we did not get to. But give me your very top tip, the top tip that you want your, your audience to come away with after listening to this
1: podcast. The top thing I would say is that we love our children. We have brought them up, we have, you know, slathered them in love and connection and everything. Do you are you really gonna hand them over to the porn industry at mm-hmm. Really? Are you gonna let these creeps in LA come in? These creeps, by the way, who you wouldn't let anywhere near your children. Right. Yet you let them right in the bedroom. Right. Are you gonna let them decide their sexual templates? Are you gonna let them decide what kind of men and women Your kids are going to become because ultimately at one point, you know, your kid, whether they're grown up or in a few years or whatever, is going to come to you and going to say, where were you? Mm. Why did you let this happen? Mm -hmm. And you have two answers. You can either shrug your shoulders or the other answer you can say, which is the answer I encourage you to say is I was out there. I was fighting for your right to have a good life. We fought the good fight, and guess what we won mm-hmm. that 's where I was at that time mm-hmm. that 's what i 'm asking every parent to say is if stand up for your kids and for the next generation and not just for your own kid because every single one of us is a stakeholder in other people 's kids.
0: Mm. So beautifully said, and I know that you're you're talking about the your resource of the week as your Cultures re, uh, Reframed, but tell me, where do you want people to go in order to get more information about you, your articles, your books, your programs, so that they can continue this education in their own homes?
1: On culturereframed.org, it's got tons of resources. It's not just a program. We've got a website, resources, my TED Talk's on there. My books, other people's books, there's other great books, there's great, we've got a whole list of great TED Talks, like from Ran he uh, from a young man who says why he stopped using porn. Mm-hmm. We've got resources, if you think your kid's in trouble with porn, you've got a list of resources there. We've got a whole resource list. So I would say it's all the one-stop shop is culturereframed.org. Perfect.
0: It's outstanding. I have to say thank you for spending this time with us today. I love what you said about really humanizing our boys and our girls and having this tough conversation even before we think that they need it because they need it now so that we don't hand over that conversation and that privilege to the porn industry. So thank you so much for joining us today. And
1: thank you for inviting me. It was wonderful. Thank you.
0: Well, I've got my takeaways and sweet friends. I am sure you have yours. Let's discuss them. Come up on Facebook. Let's go to the Dr. Robin Silverman page. Let's chat about it at DrRobinSilverman.com or Twitter.com slash Dr. Robin. Get onto Cultures Reframed and really get a sense of what is out there and what you need to know. And I'm on Instagram too. I'm going to be posting memes from this. We know that Gail, Dines had so many interesting things to say and I want to repeat them and underscore them and have you share them and please if you love this podcast like I did I hope you'll go up to iTunes and rate and review it so other people can learn more about this and what they need to know about this very important topic that's all the time we have for today my fellow parents leaders and educators thank you so much for tuning in to how to talk to kids about anything for more information on books articles speaking engagements or curriculum please visit drrobinsilverman.com. So many great podcasts up there. Show notes will be up there from this podcast interview. We will have links to all of Gail Dine's information. And I hope you enjoy your day. Enjoy the sunny side of life together. And please remember, even on the days when you fall short, you've got this. I know you probably haven't had this conversation yet now you can. You're here. You're getting the information you need. I know it's not easy, but never forget there's always tomorrow. Parenting, it's the ultimate do-over. I'm right there with you. And as there are moments when we doubt our know-how, our choices, and our sweet, sweet sanity, please know you're 10 times the parent you think you are. Until next time, this is Dr. Robin Silverman with How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Please tune in again and keep connecting through conversation. See you next week.